Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 136. Teen TV movies from Hello and welcome to episode 136 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Well, a couple of episodes ago, I talked about Some Kind of Wonderful. That was the last of the John Hughes teen films of the 1980s. That came out in 1987, and as I ended the episode, I mentioned that 1987 was pretty much the beginning of the end for the teen movie subgenre. The actors who had made their mark earlier in the decade were starting to move on to more adult roles, and there weren't as many up-and-coming young film stars to take their place. Except that is on television. It seemed like For at least a little while in the 1980s, every other sitcom had a cast member whose face you could find smiling you from the cover of Tiger Beat or Teen or any of the other teen magazines that were on the racks of your local newsstand. And since television shows were in front of our eyes for more sustained periods than a single movie, these stars became important members of our formative years. So in 1988, NBC capitalized on that, releasing three television movies that starred an array of young actors, some of whom were already household names. Crash Course, Dance Till Dawn, and Class Cruise. They were ensemble comedies filled with wacky hijinks and romance and helped spawn the teen television boom of the early 1990s. So that's what this episode is going to cover. How did the late 80s turn into a teen movie wasteland? How did these movies contribute to the rise of teen TV shows on networks in the early 90s? Were these movies even any good? You'll hear my answers to those questions after this break. So stick around. Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, 
what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. To start, I want to point out that what the movie landscape was like in 1988. Uh, Your top five for that year were in order, Rain Man, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Coming to America, Big, and Twins. What's interesting about these is that none of them are blockbuster action flicks, even though one of them has a blockbuster action flick star. And none of them has anything associated with the word franchise. I mean, Who Framed Roger Rabbit has appearances by several companies' cartoon characters, and they made a few uh, shorts, but it was never a Roger Rabbit cinematic universe. And all of them except for Rain Man are comedies. And by the way, Rain Man won Best Picture in 1988. And if you're curious, by the way, a Best Picture winner has not finished in the top 20 box office since The King's Speech, and that was in 2010. This is domestic box office, by the way. I suppose I could look up worldwide gross, but I don't know when that started being the metric. Because like for years, it was domestic box office gross, and then all of a sudden became worldwide. And I want to say it has to be, in my mind, at least from what I remember, it's The Avengers, because I think The Avengers was one of the first movies, if not the first movie, to make a billion dollars worldwide. So once that happened and it became a pattern, it became a better marketing pitch than the domestic because you could put the the billion in there. Don't quote me on that. I'm just going off the top of my head. Anyway, this is just all to say that you rarely expected a teen flick to land in the top 10. Some of them did land in like the top 10 or 20. You know, uh, The Karate Kid 2 and Ferris Bueller's Day Off were both top 10 in 1986. Uh, The Breakfast Club was the number 16 highest grossing movie in 1985. And even in 1987, you had Dirty Dancing. Now, Dirty Dancing was not a teen comedy in the John Hughes vein, but it mixed teenage romance with, like, big chill nostalgia. So you had appeal to boomers. You had appeal to teens. You had appeal to kids. Some some of the kids I went to elementary school with saw it. So it was kind of a mega success in that regard. And you also had, well, Summer School. Summer School had an adult lead, but a big teen cast, and it was a solid success. It finished in 35th place for the year. I'll come back to that one in a little bit. But the teen comedy and the teen romance genres, they were on a downturn in 1988. 
Teenage horror was still performing solidly. The number 19 of the movie of the year was A Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master. That raked in $49 million. That's a successful movie for 1988. Jason Voorhees was getting a little long in the tooth, though. Part 7 of the Friday the 13th series, The New Blood. Uh, that was out, but that just made just about as much as Part 6 did. Um, and Halloween 4, The Return of Mike and Myers was right behind it. So they were still cranking out those movies. The Freddy movies had a little bit more um, juice left in them as we went into the late 80s. I don't think Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare did very well. Uh, it wasn't very good from what I remember. I saw it in the theater, but I don't think it did very well when it uh, when it came out. But the biggest teen comedy, by the way, of 1988, just to kind of put it, this all into perspective, License to Drive, $22 million in, in 44th place in 1988. You could kind of count The Great Outdoors, um, but that was more of a family comedy than a teen comedy, even if it had a teen subplot. But if you go further down the box office mojo list looking for teen comedies or romances, you get stuff like Johnny Be Good, For Keeps, School Days, Mystic Pizza, Satisfaction, and Fresh Horses. I will remove School Days uh, from the equation here. It's an early Spike Lee movie, and we're about a year away from Do the Right Thing, where it hit that, which is his breakout hit. And that's still an, and School Days is still an independent flick. It's not a full studio production. So as well, it, it did well for what it was. Now, with the exception of Mystic Pizza, which is a sweet romantic comedy with a very good female cast, the other movies that I just mentioned, Johnny Be Good for Keep, Satisfaction, and Fresh Horses, are kind of the dregs of the video store shelves. Satisfaction only really gets any recognition because it's a very early Julia Roberts movie, as is Mystic Pizza. Now, why is that? Myriad reasons. The Gen X audience who flocked to John Hughes was aging out of the genre, and they were also becoming the cynical slackers that made the cover of Time in 1990. Video games, after crashing hard in 1983, were back in a huge way. And those Gen X kids, their younger siblings, were investing more time in Nintendo and Sega than they were, in some cases, in like the teen movies. Plus, from a pure box office perspective, Teen movies were dealing with competition from fun movies with a wide audience. I didn't see Rain Man in 1988, but everything else had appeal to teens and tweens, especially those of us who could sneak our ways into R-rated movies and or would go on to rent stuff like Coming to America when it came out on video. Video stores, by and large, the mom and pop ones, kind of look the other way when you try to rent an R-rated movies. It's why I was able to rent like Porky's at 15 and watch Fast Times at Ridgemont High and stuff like that. You know, full nudity movies and things like that. So Eddie Murphy aside though, and the kind of R-rated stuff aside, you know, Roger Rabbit and Twins and Big, yeah, there's some adult moments in those latter two, but they're definitely friendly enough that a 12-year-old could see it and it's not that big of a deal. The, the PG-13 rating really did a lot for the uh, box office and, and the way things changed in the latter part of the decade. Going further down the list, you've got other stiff competition at the box office. And like I said, the actors who were starring in the movies like The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink and, and Bueller and The Sure Thing and Better Off Dead... They were getting older. They wanted older roles. 
Emilio Estevez and the boys of the Brat Pack did Young Guns to success that year. Demi Moore would make the very rare transition from teen star to adult star in the early 1990s with Ghost uh, and A Few Good Men. And A Few Good Men is one of her best roles. Uh, She's outstanding in that movie. I I really should cover that at some point. But what they were kind of the exception to the rule. The late 1980s and early 1990s are just littered with post Brat Pack, quote, more adult flicks that didn't land. And the back end of that generation was kind of thin when it came to actors who were old enough to play roles in those movies. One thing I always remember about this period, talking like 88, 89, 90, is an interview on the Heathers DVD. Lizanne Falk, uh, she played Heather McNamara, the cheerleader, talks about how in 88 and 89, she'd always see the same people at auditions and they sometimes wound up in the same movies. Uh, For instance, she and Kim Walker are both in the party scene and say anything because there really weren't many roles for actresses around that age at the time. And, you know, you, you, there's only so many Christian Slaters and Winona Ryders, right? And beyond that, that's about it. So for a brief moment, we had the Corys, I don't know, but their rise and crash might be worth an episode of their own. You know, I mean, it's, it is slim pickings and we took what we got except for television, Because here's a list of television shows that had a modicum of appeal to teenagers or kids who are on the verge of becoming teenagers. Now, they weren't teen shows like uh, 90210. That would come in 1990. But they had, like I said at the top of the show, that teen heartthrob or beauty who people looked up to or admired or had the hots for or something. And they had some storylines that centered around those teenagers, even though they also had little kids in the cast and adults. So a lot of them are family sitcoms and shows, but that tween audience of the late 80s, and the word tween wasn't around back then, but that audience, that's what we, because I was part of that audience, that's what we glommed onto. So let's go with what was there in 1988. The Facts of Life, that was in its final season, but in like perpetual reruns and syndication. The Disney Sunday Movie, uh, this was, uh, it eventually became like the wonderful world of Disney again. And I think it was on ABC at this point. And it was just family f- TV movies. Some of them were very silly, like a, a, a sequel to the parent trap, but then there were others that were a, skewed a little bit older. A lot of them had lessons and things, but, uh, you know, again, when you're 11 years old, it's, it's, it's safe to watch Patrick Dempsey in a movie about epilepsy or something. 21 Jump Street, Married with Children werewolf all fox shows and there's a whole conversation to be had about how the fox network really took hold of the teen audience in the late 80s and early 90s mainly because the audience was ripe for the picking and they were they were going to have a hard time competing for the adult audience that nbc cbs and abc were grabbing so you put out married with children which gets all the kind of crude controversy and jump street which makes a teen heartthrob out of Johnny Depp. And, you know, there you go. And then Werewolf was a show that I watched, but I think it was only on for a season or two and, and things like that. So Our House. Uh, this was a family drama with Wilford Brimley. Yes, diabetes. Uh, Deirdre Hall, uh, who played Marlena on Days of Our Lives, she would come back to that show after Our House got canceled and then get possessed. Uh, Chad Allen and Shannon Doherty. Very young Shannon Doherty, pre-Heathers and pre-90210. 
Family Ties, of course, My Two Dads, Day by Day. This was a show that lasted a couple of seasons, and uh, Christopher Daniel Barnes was like a thing for like a moment. I think Julia Louis-Dreyfus was on this show right before Seinfeld, but yeah, that's, that was kind of the thing. Uh, Alf, Valerie's Family, which later became the Hogan Family, which of course, as we all know, starred Jason Bateman. Of course, the ABC double, uh, a triple play of Who's the Boss Growing Pains in the Wonder Years. The Wonder Years, by the way, premiered in 1988. It premiered after the Super Bowl. And I covered the first episode of that show on In Country a number of years ago because of the plot point in there that Winnie Cooper's brother dies in Vietnam. Uh, then there was the Growing Pains spinoff Just the Ten of Us, which combined family comedy with teen stuff. Heather Langenkamp from... A Nightmare on Elm Street was in it. Uh, Jamie Lunar, who would later go on to be in like a number of primetime soaps like Melrose Place and a bunch of WB things was on there. And Brooke Theis, who is in one of these movies that I'm going to talk about, was the other kind of older daughter of the Lubbock family. I get the theme song of, my, of that show stuck in my head all the time. I think I watched every episode of it because it was, it was, this was the dawn of TGIF on ABC, by the way, too. So again, like all of these things are coming together and we're seeing a lot of teenagers on television beyond the movies because the movies aren't doing as well. Beyond that, we still have the Cosby show. Uh, Lisa Bonet had already spun off into a different world. Um, Boys Will Be Boys is the last show that I have on my list. And that was a retooling of the Fox sitcom Second Chance, which starred future Friends actor Matthew Perry. So again, some of these shows were on their last legs. Others were gaining in popularity. Others lasted all of a single season. But they had plenty of actors and actresses who would outshine those who were on film, at least in some of the minds of my generational peers. And don't forget, this was still the era of television and film being very separate entities. People didn't cross over from film to television very often, and if an actor from a television show wound up having a successful film career, they often didn't go back into television unless they were like contractually obligated. Michael J. Fox was kind of the exception to the rule. You know, he broke out into back to the, the Back to the Future movies in the mid '80s, but he played Alex Keaton all the way up to the end of Family Ties. Often, an actor who got really popular in a movie would leave a show. John Travolta in Welcome left Welcome Back Cotter as, you know, he got more popular in the 70s. And the transition from television to film was still pretty rare anyway. You know, people tried it and it didn't necessarily work. A great example of that is don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. You know, let's take TV siren Christina Applegate, put her in a movie, tape her out of the Kelly Bundy thing. I think it's a it's a well it's a well-known movie. It's kind of a cult teen flick in a way. There are people who have affection for it, but it was not Back to the Future. But that didn't mean the networks couldn't capitalize on their teen star power. They'd done it before. For a great example of that and other teen movies, go check out the book, Are You in the House Alone? As well as the podcast TV movie Mayhem. Uh, Amanda Reyes and her co-host, co-writers, do such an outstanding job and have a deep appreciation for the history of the format. Um, they do talk about some, I think there's one called Senior Trip that comes to mind of, and other ones, especially scar starring Scott Baio, where they talk about um, the teen-oriented television movies of the, of the 70s and early 80s and such. Uh, but yeah, so 
NBC knew that this audience was out there. Moreover, they probably saw the writing on the wall that they had one shot to, or had the moment to capture something out of these kids before MTV completely overran everything. Um, you know, not everybody had cable in 1988. Uh, cable became more ubiquitous in the early 90s. So the network still had some, had some more power here. And they produced three movies. The first was called Crash Course. This is supposed to be driver's ed. Not an audition for Bananarama. A class I would like for you to meet. I said quiet. My name is Edna Winifred Savage. Miss Savage to you. You can take your seat. I have been given the mandate to make drivers out of you, misfits. Hey, if it isn't Crash and Bash him and Smash him, Rico Connor. Quiet. <laughs> 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 Mr. Connor, I see your reputation has preceded you. Yes, I guess I'm a legend. And you'll be history if you don't sit down. Jack, sir. Sleeper. Now, Mr. Connor. This is how I eliminate smart mouth students like you. From now on, if you're even one minute late, you will receive a demerit on your permanent record. If you mouth off, you will receive another demerit. Accumulate sufficient demerits and you fail. No way. Sounds like she's got your number, Rico. <laughs> this first aired on January 17th, 1988, and it netted 33.8 million viewers, winning the night after a strong lead-in of the AFC Championship game Family Ties and My Two Dads. It's a movie that I didn't know existed until a few months ago when I was doing research for another episode and I saw this on someone's IMDb page. Don't ask me what episode I was researching because I don't remember. But what I do remember is finding it on YouTube in its entirety with commercials, which, by the way, is always a treat. I love seeing I just, uh, you know, the nostalgia of it, of a commercial from back in the day is just as as big for me as the movie itself. Right. So anyway, I decided to watch it. So here's the plot. And I and I grabbed the Wikipedia summary for all these plots because I just time and effort, et cetera, et cetera. So here we go. Crash Course centers on a group of teen high schoolers in a driver's education class, many for the second or third time. The recently divorced teacher, super passive Larry Pearl, Charlie Robinson, who by the way played Mac on Night Court, Night Court is on thin ice with the football fanatic principal, Principal Paulston, played by Ray Walston. Aloha, Mr. Hand who is being pressured by the district superintendent to raise driver's education completion rates or lose his coveted football program. With this in mind, Principal Paulson and his assistant with a secret desire for his job, Abner Frazier, who's played by Harvey Corman, hire an outside driver's education structure with a very tough reputation, Edna Savage, Jack A., a.k.e. E.W. Savage, who quickly takes control of the class. 
The plot focuses mostly on the students and their interactions with their teachers and each other. In the beginning, Rico, played by Brian Bloom, is the loner with just a few friends. Chadley, Rob Stone, who is the older brother on Mr. Belvedere. Another show with a teenage cast member, by the way is the bookish nerd with a few friends who longs to be cool and also longs to be part of Vanessa, Alyssa Milano's life, who is the, she's the young, friendly, attractive girl who had to fake her overprotective mother's signature on her driver education permission slip. And by the way, her mother is played by the ever-lovely Edie McClurg. Kichi, who is played by B.D. Wong, is the hip-hop Asian kid who often raps what he has to say and constantly flirts with Maria, who is played by the Wonder Years' Olivia Debeau. And yes, that's not a mistake. Hip-hop Asian kid who often raps what he has to say. I will talk about that later. Uh, uh, Maria is the rich foreign girl who thinks that the right-of-way on roadways always goes to insert awesomely fake foreign Latino accent, my father's limo. Finally, you have stereotypical football meathead JJ, who's played by Nathan Dyer, who needs to pass his English exam to keep his eligibility and constantly asks out and gets rejected by Alice, who's played by Family Ties' Tina Yothers. She's a tomboy whose father owns Santini and Son Concrete Company. Alice is portrayed as being the, quote, son her father wanted. As the movie progresses, the students' relationships with their teacher, each other, and all their driving abilities all begin to improve. Friendships are formed in and out of the classroom. All the while, Abner, acting principal while Paulson is out of town, is spying on the entire bunch, teachers and students, and constantly calling the superintendent with the purpose of smearing the reputation of Principal Paulson in hopes of taking his job. In the meantime, Edna, who is initially cool and somewhat hostile to Larry, begins to see him in a new light. And at the same time, Larry, who was initially a nervous and passive man, mainly due to stress involving his ex-wife and their divorce, becomes more assertive and confident in himself, which Edna finds very attractive. Just as things start to look up for the class in school and at home, an untimely accident involving Chad, Vanessa, and the driver's education car brings the entire class closer together. Literally, each character, save for Abner, whose attempts to take over as principal are thwarted by the progression of all the characters and the timely return of Principal Paulson, reaches a point in their life where they seem happy with themselves, their relationships with their friends, and their relationships with their parents. Ultimately, all the kids pass the course of flying colors, and Larry and Edna end up falling in love and entering into a romantic relationship. And that is the plot, thank you Wikipedia, of Crash Course. Now, when I watched this for the first time, I had two thoughts. A, it's very sitcom-y. Of course, the majority of the cast was then on sitcoms, so the hijinks matched. B, it was basically summer school set in driver's ed. Well, summer school with the dash of the 1985 comedy, Moving Violations, you know, set in driver's ed. You have a down-on-his-luck teacher, a conniving assistant principal, and a motley crew of students who seem to have a snowball's chance in hell of passing. And for the most part, this movie's well cast. I love Night Court. I enjoy seeing that shows actors in anything, so it was cool to see Charles Robinson playing the lead role. Like I said earlier, Edie McClurg is a joy at anything that she's in. Jack Hay, well, honestly, Jack Hay just has to show up and she improves the whatever she's in. The students do their best with the material they're given, even if they're all basically cast as tropes. But since they're experienced sitcom actors, they make it work. 
Alyssa Milano being the sheltered pretty girl, Brian Bloom having troubles with his overbearing dad. And, you know, when your dad is played by Dick Butkus, you can see how that can be an issue. Tina Yothers being the overlooked tomboy, Rob Stone's the nerd, B.D. Wong, the rapping Asian guy. Yeah, I know. It's not entirely Getty Watanabe as Long Duck Dong, but it's cringeworthy in the way that any attempt to make someone rap in a movie or TV show from the late 80s and early 90s was cringeworthy. Supersonic, idiotic, disconnected, not respected. Who would ever really want to go and top that? Such a waste of pretty face, but hanging in your nose face. I wish that you would take a look and really stop that. Okay, almost any attempt to make someone rap in a movie or TV show from the late 80s and early 90s was cringeworthy. Not every scene can be as iconic as Top That. Really, though, like, Asian rapping guy, you hear his character rap in the movie, you just think, please make it stop. It doesn't. It's his thing. I, I, I don't. I, I can't explain it other than be like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> 33 million people watch the show, though. I mean, it, it's pretty solid, even though the movie's largely forgotten. Or maybe I think it's largely forgotten because I'd never heard of it. And we all know that my giant ego determines the state of popular culture. Really, though, Crash Course is kind of forgettable, especially since the film it does rip off, which is Summer School, still has the nostalgic staying power and is a much better movie when you really think about it. Dance Till Dawn, on the other hand, seems to have nostalgic staying power with some people. Okay, everybody, it's the magic hour. Time to announce the king and queen of the Hoover High Senior Prom. the winners is the head of the prom committee, your very own Patrice Johnson. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Principal Tidwell, teachers, mom, dad, fellow students, it is my great privilege to announce the highest honor that Hoover High School can bestow upon a student. What is a queen? A queen must be beautiful, of course, but she must also be fair, wise, intelligent, popular, and have a C in phys ed. The king, too. Given such strict criteria, there can only be one choice for such an honor. So your prom king for this year is... Kevin McRae. <laughs> Congratulations, Kevin. Tough luck, Roger. I voted for you. And now, the moment that you've all been waiting for. Your prom queen is... Oh, Shelly Sheridan. 
This is all your fault. Huh? Remember when you went through your punk rock period? Your spike tear reflected on me. Oh, sure. This movie is nothing on the level of, say, Pretty in Pink. And fewer people watched it than watched Crash Course. But there are people my age who do remember the movie from either its NBC showings or reruns on networks like USA, for instance. It originally aired on October 23, 1988. It netted 24.2 million viewers, coming in second to part two of CBS's Jack the Ripper miniseries. As an aside, I remember that Jack the Ripper miniseries because it had been 100 years since the notorious murders. It was kind of a TV docudrama that never really reached a conclusion as to the identity of the titular killer. But that was enough to get adults on the remote for the night, as opposed to the kids. Plus, Dance Till Dawn was also competing with the first few weeks of a new television season, as opposed to the January lull where Crash Course had dropped. I couldn't find any data on the ratings for the Fox network in 1988, but I know that Married with Children was airing at that time and may have siphoned off more than a few viewers. Despite that, 24.2 million people watching and a second place finish for its time slot, that's a solid performance. Now, I'm going to go back to Wikipedia for the summary, so here's the summary of the plot of Dance Till Dawn. It's the day of the senior prom at Herbert Hoover High School. The prom has been organized by one of the most popular girls in the school, the beautiful but obnoxious Patrice Johnson, who's played by Christina Applegate. When Shelley Sheridan, Alyssa Milano, and her jock boyfriend Kevin McRae, who's played by Brian Bloom, break up just before the prom because she refuses to sleep with him, they're both forced to try to find new dates at short notice. When Shelly can't find a date, she lies to her friends and tells them that she's going to a college frat party instead. She goes into the town cinema to watch an old horror movie where she assumes that she will not run into anyone from school, but she bumps into Dan Lefcourt, who's played by Chris Young, who you will remember from such films as The Great Outdoors and PCU. He's the pre-frosh, Tom. Dan Lefcourt in this movie is one of the school geeks, and he's also gone to the cinema to avoid the prom. Dan has lied to his father, played by Alan Thicke, telling him that he was going to the prom because he didn't want his father to find out that he has a low social status at school and couldn't get a date. Dan helps Shelley avoid being seen by another group of students, and she soon discovers that he is a really nice guy. After one of Kevin's friends tells him a false story about an unpopular girl at the school, Angela Strull, played by Growing Pains' Tracy Gold, tells her that she's easy. Kevin decides to invite her to the prom. Angela is delighted to be going to the prom with Kevin. Her best friend, Margaret, played by Tempest Bledsoe, is initially supportive, but later becomes skeptical of Kevin's motives. Now, not only does Kevin try to hoodwink Margaret into believing that his intentions are honorable, he also has to contend with Angela's overprotective religious fanatic pharmacist's father, Ed, who's played by Kelsey Grammer. Ed tries to follow the two lovebirds all night, eventually getting arrested for his trouble. Meanwhile, Patrice is confident that she'll be named the prom queen when her only real competition, Shelly, doesn't show up at the prom. To that end, she's arranged an all-night celebration with her boyfriend, Roger, who's played by Matthew Perry, who she keeps on a short string. But then Angela appears in Cinderella fashion and Angela and Kevin are voted prom king and queen. Kevin tries to get Angela into bed, but she resists and confronts him about the real reasons for asking her out, 
when he explains that he really does like her now, she points out that he should have respected her from the start. By the end of the film at Hudson's, a.k.a. Hud's, which is a popular diner where everyone shows up the morning after the prom, Angela has learned that her parents had to get married because they conceived her while they were high school students. Confident after her night as prom queen, she informs them that she's going to art school in Italy rather than Bible college. Kevin ends his night without sex and defends Angela's honor when his friend makes a lewd comment. Meanwhile, Shelly and Dan announce they are now going steady and kiss, much to the shock of every senior in the room. I covered this movie before. I was in a blog post that I published in April of 2011, but I figured I've put enough distance between that blog post and this episode to give it another look. Plus, the post is more autobiographical than this episode, so it won't overlap too much. I will link to it in the show notes. I remember watching this when I was about 11 or 12, and I think it may have been when the show was rerun during the summer because I was able to watch it all the way to the end. And during elementary school, I did have a pretty strict bedtime during the school week. So I would have not have seen it first run. But whether it was during fifth grade or the summer before sixth, I remembered it well for a long time afterward. Part of that, I think, is owed to the cast. Just about every actor in the movie was someone I'd recognized or was already watching. I'd say that Brian Bloom was probably the exception because at the moment he was on As the World Turns, but I more than likely saw him in an issue of TV Guide on the cover of a soap opera digest when I was at Wallbounds or the AMP. But I'd, I watch the Cosby show sometimes. I watch Growing Pains all the time. I watch Who's the Boss. Even Matthew Perry, sorry, Matthew L. Perry, as he was going by. You know, he was in Boys Will Be Boys. I watched this that second season of that show. And Chris Young was an actor. I like. I couldn't place him, but I knew him. He was kind of like, he was that guy. I knew that guy. And I'd seen that guy's movies, even if I didn't know his name. And then it would be a couple years later where I was like, oh, yeah, he's in The Great Outdoors. And, he's in P and then later on PCU. So anyway, the plot, well... It was weirdly aspirational to me at 11, even if it's hokey and like wildly outdated. In my original blog post, it said that it felt like I had just watched a 90-minute episode of Happy Days, and it still feels like that, you know, with its make-out point and its use of words like going steady, as well as the overemphasis on traditional high school cliques. I am sure that the idea of popularity in corresponding groups is still a thing among teenagers. But the embarrassment of being seen with a nerd or the campaigning for prom queen, this seems like something that adults think high schoolers find important. However, it also seems like something that a person on the verge of teenagerhood might think high schoolers find important. And as someone who was quite impressionable at that age, I know I got the impression that this is what I should look forward to even if high school wasn't really like that. I came to realize the difference between fantasy or perception and reality of high school pretty quickly, but Dance Till Dawn had another impact on me. It was really my first teen movie. Now, I had already seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off. In fact, I owned a copy. I watched it pretty regularly. But Ferris is more of a farce than it is a serious or movie or romance flick. And for all of the slapstickiness, especially with Kelsey Grammer, and by the way, Edie McClurg returns this time as Tracy Gold's mother, so she's with Kelsey Grammer this whole time. Dance Till Dawn is a much different movie, and it planted the seed for me to want to see other movies like it. Now, it'll be a few years before I do a really deep dive into like John Hughes, John Cusack, and Cameron Crowe, but it 
truly did start here. And it's a fun film. You know, again, it's sitcom-y. Most of the actors come from sitcoms, so they know how to play this script. There are a couple of adult storylines. Uh, Alan Thicke's cool dad thing. Um, Alan Thicke does smarmy cool dad really, really well, so he's really good in the in the show. Kelsey Grammer and Edie McClurg basically playing the Ed Rooney of the whole thing works. And then there's a whole other subplot where Patrice's parents, uh, I don't remember the, the actress who plays her, her mother, but her dad is played by Cliff DeYoung, who was in Secret Admirer and would show up in the occasional television show and such like that. And they're like on the verge of divorce. They're, they're so always mad at each other. And he's this aging 60s hippie guy. And he's trying to be kind of baby boomer cool for everybody. And it it's kind of dumb, sad, but it as a 40-something-year-old adult with a teenage kid, it kind of hit home in a way that I didn't expect because my music is now old and and such. But let's get to the last movie, which is Class Cruise, before I come to an overall conclusion about all of this. This film had the same director as Crash Course, but the cast was not as marquee as the other two. The teen actors in this one, including Billy Warlock, who at that point had just started Baywatch, Michael DeLuise, he would later be on 21 Jump Street and then is in Encino Man and is the, is in, he's in my, one of my all time favorite gifts, the Sean Astin looking at Megan Ward in Encino Man clip and he slides in with the head shaking thing. Yeah, uh, that's an all time favorite. Uh, Andrea Elson, who is the teenage daughter on Alf, Brooke Theis, who I mentioned was just on Just the Ten of Us, Mark Price, Skippy Handelman. <laughs> from Family Ties is also in there. Among the adults in the movie are Richard Maul, who Richard Maul showed up at one point or another in just about everything in the 80s and 90s. Uh, yeah, it's... <laughs> McLean Steven Stevenson was in this, and then Ray Walston made another appearance. The movie did not do as well as the other two. It only netted 17.6 million viewers compared to the performances of CBS's TV movie, Do You Know the Muffin Man, which aired the same night. That movie, by the way, was about sex abuse in a daycare center, something that was a bit of a panic in America in the late 80s and had a tenuous connection to that decade's satanic panic. There's a couple of podcasts out there about that sort of thing. Uh, there was, I know, a big case up in Canada that was very, very famous. Um, I, I can't remember off the top of my head which podcast it was, so you might want to go check it out. It might have been one of the CBC ones. So anyway, Class Cruise. It's notable that Class Cruise aired at 9.30. So it, from, it took the 9.30 to 11 slot after a lead an episode of My Two Dads, but that only pulled 16 million viewers, so it was, wasn't much of a lead-in. Class Cruise came in fourth place for that time slot. Coming in behind Do You Know the Muffin Man, ABC's broadcast of The Color of Money, and Married with Children. Don't forget, Married with Children. You know, there's there's a... I was watching some one of those like retro shows a couple weeks ago. It was on Hulu, and I was like, I just needed something dumb to watch, like a pop culture retro show. And there's this ongoing, there's this narrative about Fox that like there was 
that the Simpsons kind of put the the network on the map and and in there you know they were kind of that was the first breakout hit and the Simpsons really was a pop culture phenomenon in a way that did elevate Fox's status but you cannot discount the impact Married with Children had in the early days of that network um and I think when you talk about when you kind of try to start the Fox network's history with the Simpsons um you ignore their earlier breakout hits, which I've mentioned, Married with Children and 21 Jump Street. Somebody let me produce one of these shows. I'd be accurate. Anyway, Class Cruise. Class Cruise is really hard to find online. Um, it's hard to find anything about it online, to be honest. I, there's a cast list, a couple of basic synopses, a random clip or two. I was not able to find the full movie, so I was not able to watch the full movie. The plot synopsis written by an IMDb user reads, A few pupils from County High are selected to be the first to go on a study cruise, a privilege that was formerly reserved for members of private schools. Sam, Boz, Stacy, and Kim struggle to fit in, but the snobs do everything to make them look badly. So it's a class and click struggle, and since it was directed by the same guy who did Crash Course, I imagine it's probably full of hijinks but it's more of an obscure afterthought when it comes to these types of movies. It would have been interesting to see if it was any good. So if you know where to find it, feel free to send it my way. But beyond this, even though there was diminishing return in terms of viewership for these three movies, the wacky hijinks of teenagers didn't kind of fade into the background after they were done. They didn't become an obscure afterthought because they were on the forefront of NBC's mind even after these started aired. Why? Because they just decided to shift to Saturday morning in 1989. While I don't know enough about what went on behind closed doors at NBC, in the late 80s, someone had to be looking at the solid performance of Crash Course and Dance Till Dawn when they decided to give Save by the Bell the green light. The movies fit right in stylistically, and the audience was pretty much the same. In fact, the whole we wrecked the car and then worked together to build it back up so nobody would know thing, I believe that's an actual plot point of a Save by the Bell episode. But since the 11 or 12-year-olds who love Dance Till Dawn might not be counted upon to turn into a primetime show, primetime shows were, well, prime real estate, Saved by the Bell would not be a surefire hit if it aired at night. Saturday After Saturday cartoons, though? Yeah. And as I said, like, years ago when I covered the show, Saved by the Bell is essentially a live-action Saturday morning cartoon, at least in its first few seasons. And it does kind of, quote, mature a little because the characters get older, so there's only so much, like, silly screech robot hijinks you can get. But really, this becomes the dawn of the era of the teen show. And in 1990, Beverly Hills 90210 premieres on Fox. And this cracks a code. And that code, it would lead to the majority of what the CW or what was then the WB would program starting in 1997. But Buffy, 
Dawson's Creek and all of their offshoots, they were nearly a decade after what I'm looking at here. So this period of 88 until about the early to mid-90s, they were a generational crossroads. The older members of Generation X, like I said, had already grown up. They were facing an unknown world that didn't seem to give them much regard. Elder millennials were still young. They would still be guided through their early, early adolescence through a number of tween movies and shows before having a plethora of flicks made for them along with most of MTV to play with. But those of us who are at the tail end of Generation X... We had to make ourselves content with our older siblings' hand-me-downs or whatever table scraps were available when it came to pop culture. It's a fascinating micro-era, and I'll probably come back to it again, although I'll do it by looking at other things. There are other television shows, teen television shows, like Parker Lewis Can't Lose, for instance. There's like those early 90s VMAs. Um, there are a number of other things that I could take a look at. So it'll be something I come back to here and there. But before that, I will be wrapping up my series of three episodes about America, its history, its people, and its culture. Uh, that last episode, which will air in a couple of weeks, will take a look at the concept of walking across America through the lens of Peter Jenkins' book, A Walk Across America, and its sequel, The Walk West, A Walk Across America 2. Simultaneously, or around the same time, or, or actually out now, is the latest episode of Required Reading, where Stella and I took a look at the sort of hiking travel subgenre while hiking through Shenandoah National Park on the Appalachian Trail. So you could check, check that out and then go check out my episode about a walk across America in about uh, two weeks from now. So come back for that. Don't forget to check out the show notes. I will put clips of these movies. If I can find commercials for them, I will as well. I will put links to the uh, Dance Till Dawn review I did years ago. And I will also drop in the full Crash Course and Dance Till Dawn movies that are available for free on YouTube so you can watch them if you would like to. And as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Oh,